0: Welcome to Pastor Stephen Samuel's podcast, where it's our desire that you'll be encouraged and empowered to live as a disciple-making follower of Jesus. If we don't know how to suffer well, we'll suffer longer. And there's some tools I feel like the Holy Spirit's given to us tonight to show us, not that we're, you know, putting our faith in suffering to come, but when suffering does come and struggles do come in your life, Hopefully, the Holy Spirit will remind you, "Hey, this is the Scriptures you need to go to to anchor yourself to endure hardship." Like Paul says to Timothy, "Endure hardship like a good soldier." Okay. Um, when we're confronted with suffering, here's usually what happens, right? And we are in a, we're in Hurricane Alley, and so we know a little bit about hardship. And when when hardship comes, there's the first thing many of us do, and I'm not saying we're bad people for it, but we panic. <laughs> What's going on, you know? Panic, fear comes in. Whenever there's a storm forming in the Gulf and it's aiming for us, like we can all talk about this because we've experienced this numerous times, right? There's this sense of panic. Well, what is that? That's just fear, right? And fear is a somewhat amoral emotion, but if you let it get out of control, it'll become a controlling emotion. Fear kicks in. And here's what cannot happen when you're afraid. You don't think reasonably, you exaggerate everything, right? Your body, your mind is built so when you're afraid, everything kind of intensifies, right? And so when, we, when we're panicked and fear-stricken, we are not entering into the process or enduring suffering well or even preparing ourselves to endure suffering well. So when fear kicks in, You've already fallen off the track. In fact, many times when God would come throughout the Old Testament and he would speak to people, even Jesus, when he would do the miraculous, he would tell people, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Why? Because your reasoning and your maturity goes out the window when you're afraid. The next thing people tend to do when they endure suffering is they want to broadcast it to everybody the injustices happening to them. I know you've never done that on social media, right? When something wrong happens to you or you're going through suffering, we feel like, I just need to tell everybody what's happening. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it doesn't really prepare you to go through suffering. In fact, it just pulls a lot of people into your pain, and then your pain is prolonged even more because now you've got everybody talking about how bad things are going on in your life. I'm not saying we shouldn't have people to go to and talk with, but when we start involving dozens and dozens of people into our suffering, now the suffering becomes a common ground that we all kind of just camp out on. Everybody heard that statement, misery loves company, right? So sometimes we panic, sometimes we broadcast everything that's happening to us, right? And then another thing that we can do, many times when we go through suffering, is the, the natural responses, the, the fight or flight symptoms or responses. We want to fight somebody. We want to blame somebody. They're the reason for my suffering. And sometimes, suffering is induced by people's wrong decisions. People make bad decisions, and those bad decisions will impact you. But getting angry at the people that are hurting you prolongs suffering, (laughs) because now you've got to work on your anger issue and not the real issue. You with me? When you have to work on anger issues, then you're not working on the real issue that's causing the suffering, The the suffering is now inside of you because you don't know how to deal with anger and blame comes along with that. We're trying to find somebody to blame. Especially when tragedy hits our lives, many times we look for somebody to blame and we get stuck in the rut of suffering because it's their fault. And I'm not saying people don't bear the responsibility sometimes for your pain, but blame doesn't get you out of it. The last thing um, to say on this, All these responsibles, the fight or flight mechanism, the blaming, um, broadcasting your injustice and panic, all these are just temporary responses. They're not going to pull you out of the rut. They're just temporary responses and somewhat natural psychological responses to suffering. But then we open the text of scripture and we see how Jesus taught and the disciples taught suffering, how to endure suffering. You don't see these things. They taught a different way to endure suffering. And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. How can we arm ourselves to go through difficult times? And let me define what suffering is. And there's a methodology applicable to both. Sometimes we suffer because we've made a dumb decision. I'm probably the only one guilty of that. But... I just wanted her to come up here, you know, and spend some time with me. Um, Sometimes suffering happens because we've made some bad decisions. And part of maturity or getting through that suffering is to realize I made this happen and take ownership of it, which means repent. (laughs) That's how you take ownership of something. It's not just, well, it's my fault, and then there it is, but repentance has to happen. And if repentance doesn't happen, then you're stuck in the suffering. Oh, we're back. Okay, we're going to try this out again. Thank you, babe. Intermission. Okay. There we go. Great job, babe. You never made suffering sound so good. (laughs) Okay. So sometimes we do some things, and it causes pain in our lives and other people's lives, and the way to kind of move out of that rut of suffering or start the process is repentance. We all know that. We confess our sins. God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Another part of repentance is not just you and God. It's you and the people that you've hurt. A huge step of getting out of pain in your life is apologizing to the people you've hurt. And that takes a great deal of humility. I did this. I was wrong. Shouldn't have done it. Shouldn't have said this. And sometimes it means reparations, right, trying to amend a situation. It takes a great deal of humility, but here's what happens when you enter into that place of humility, of humbling yourself. It puts an end to suffering. It begins to give grace. God begins to put grace in your life to work out the salvation he's trying to work out of you, okay? But there's another kind of suffering where you didn't cause the pain, someone else did, or just the course of life events have caused suffering. Hurricanes, <laughs> they cause suffering. Nobody's out there in the Gulf stirring the water up, you know what I'm saying? Sometimes the devil attacks your life, and there is a real devil, and he really wants to deal, destroy you, and he doesn't play fair. Drunk driver hits your vehicle, kills people hurts you, destroys your material possessions. Things can happen. And when that kind of suffering hits your life, that's really what the scriptures address most of the time when it talks about enduring suffering. Peter says, listen, if you suffer because you've done something wrong, listen, don't think it's such an admirable thing. You're just reaping the consequence of what you've planted in the ground. That doesn't mean there's not grace for you. There is. But when we talk about suffering for the sake of the gospel, sometimes it it, it always comes from the outside trying to get into us. Okay? Okay? How do we um, arm ourselves to go through suffering? Y'all still with me? <clears throat> First thing we need to know is suffering only happens for a season. It starts and it has an end. The flip side of that is victory also is a season. It starts and it has an end. So in our life, there will be varying types of suffering, varying types of victory, But all of them change over time. And the constant that God is trying to develop in you is a maturity, an ability to trust him, whether you're in victory or you're in struggling and suffering. And you alone can determine if you'll grow into that place of maturity. So no matter what comes against you, you have the joy of the Lord as your strength. That doesn't mean you're always jumping up and down and happy. That means no matter what happens, I'm not going to be shaken in my faith of God working in my life, in my relationship with him. That's where maturity kicks in, okay? Um, Proverbs chapter 27, verse 12, he says, a prudent man foresees evil and hides himself. The simple pass on and are punished. This is a unique little proverb because it's telling us whether you want it or not, suffering is coming into your life. Things are going to fall apart. I know you're going to hate me for saying this, but there's a good chance there will be another hurricane, in Southeast Texas. A prudent man sees trouble coming and makes preparation. The simple go on and they're punished. Now we can talk about the practical aspects of preparing for hurricanes and things, but I'm talking about the emotional and spiritual aspects. Am I prepared to not emotionally tie myself to so much material things that when loss happens, I'm a train wreck? That's the real question. But we talk about, you know, in all this, I'm sure none of you guys have done this, right? But may I have? I'm one of those guys like, I don't evacuate until I absolutely have to evacuate. Which in retrospect, many times is very dumb. Because then you're crawling out of windows and jumping off roofs, and (laughs) You're swimming out, and I swam out of the last hurricane. Not the smartest thing, right? Because we all feel like, well, it's going to flood, but it's not going to touch my house, right? I know y'all don't think like that. But here's what the Bible says. A prudent man, when he sees danger coming, he prepares himself. And then it says, but the simple, that's, that's King James' word for stupid. The stupid people, they just go on and wham, they get hit and suffering happens. And here's usually the first response. Why, God, is this happening to me? Well, if you're not prepared for it, as the scriptures give you counsel to be prepared, we can't blame God. Right, we can't go to God and say, "Well, God, you made all this bad stuff happen." Listen, God gives us warning. You're in a world that's broke, and when suffering's about to hit your life, He'll give you warnings, prophetic words. Sometimes, uh, the counsel of His the Scriptures that speak to you and say, "Hey, get get your life in order, get things prepared," and if you're wise, you'll start preparing, not in fear, but in wisdom. Right? Okay. On three, there's three different times Jesus gives his disciples the admonition that the evil days are coming and they must endure to the end. Enduring evil doesn't simply mean you must be miserable. Rather, it is a maturity to maintain joy in times of difficulty. So when we talk about and Jesus telling his disciples, listen, things are going to get bad. He says that to them. He says, when I'm going, then things are going to get bad. They're going He doesn't say, you know, you're going to have a few friends unfriend you on Facebook. You're going to, you know, get blocked from a Twitter account. He says, no, they are going to kill you, and you need to be ready. I mean, this was not the recruit disciples speech that he gave, you know. They're gonna kill you. And so I wanna look at these three passages with you. With you, Go with me to, um, excuse me, go with me to Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. And this is when Jesus first sends out his 12 disciples to go proclaim the kingdom of God is coming. Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. And it's the, the phrase where we get the sheep among wolves. That statement is made in this in this uh, dialogue with them. He says, verse 17, Matthew chapter 10, we'll start verse 17. says, but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Wait, what does he say here? You'll be brought before kings and governors for what purpose? As a testimony to them, a witness to them of who? Jesus. But it's not a witness to them like they want you to come and tell them. It's when you're going through suffering, you are testifying to who God is while you're in the suffering. And you may not realize this, but everyone that you have proclaimed Jesus to is watching you when they're going through suffering with you. How will you respond? And if the church and the world look no different when they go through suffering, that should cause a great concern. It should. And I'm not saying we as the church should be stoic and not have an emotional response to pain, but even in our emotional response to pain and suffering, we should be able to steadfastly anchor our hope in Jesus is with us. And we're going to get through this. Watch what he says here. He says, You'll be brought before kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry. What is he essentially saying? Don't be afraid. Do not worry. About how or what you should speak, for it was given to you in that hour what you should speak. And this is a very literal prophecy that the disciples would experience. Keep going. Now, brother will deliver up brother to death, father his children, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he that endures to the end will be saved. That's a very interesting scenario here, this interesting statement. Now, look at the next one that he says here in Matthew chapter 24, verse 7 through 14. And this is what we call the Olivet Discourse. So he's on the Mount of Olives, and he's being asked three questions. The disciples come to him because they're showing him the temple. They're like, man, look at this great temple. It's beautiful, gold, columns, ivory, blah, blah, blah. Show him all this temple. And Jesus says, this temple will be destroyed. Speaking of his body, but he says, this temple will be destroyed. And then Jesus begins to predict how the Romans would then later destroy the temple and take every sliver of gold out of the temple. And they're like, oh, my goodness, this temple has been around, I think it was like 52-something years. And they're like, this temple is going to be destroyed. And then he says to them, Lord, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your return and the end of the age? You remember that little discussion? And when they ask him those three questions, Jesus responds with this Dialogue or a monologue of what's going to happen in the end times. And that's where we pick it up, verse 7. For nations will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in various places. Anybody say that sounds kind of familiar, like right now? And all these are the beginning of sorrows. And they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Let me just take a little pause here. I would have thought. To even as early as two or three years ago, this was such a far-fetched idea. But in the last year and a half, I mean, really COVID kind of earmarked, the hostility that people have is just profoundly, I would say, and I'm kind of stretching it, profoundly demonic. Like people can get so angry so fast over such foolish things. It's amazing to me when somebody, and I'll just I'll step out in the water, you know, somebody that wears a mask talking to somebody that doesn't wear a mask, or vice versa, the hostility that people can show. This scripture kind of encapsulates the hatred over something so dumb. What is that? It says mark earmark, we're in that season where people were literally in a murderous kind of way, hostile toward each other over foolish things. Temporal things. We're not fighting wars over land and territory. We're talking about ideologies. You believe one way and somebody believes the other way. And how many of y'all, probably every one of us can raise hands of friends, family that are no longer talking to you because of the insanity of what they believe or don't believe. And if your position is different, listen, that kind of insanity, purely fueled by the enemy to produce this kind of situation. Jesus says, listen, be careful. <laughs> he says, they will deliver you up to tribulation to kill you. And he's talking about the faith, but watch what he says here. Then many will be offended. Listen, it is cool to be offended these days. It's almost chic. If you're not offended, you're not on the in crowd. But it's a am offended about something. You know, many will be offended. You know why people are offended? They don't know how to go through suffering. They get bitter. And when you don't know how to go through suffering, you start blaming. You start getting angry. You start getting afraid. And offense kicks in. Many will be offended and will betray one another. Does that sound familiar? And will hate one another. Very familiar, huh? We kind of see it every day. Then many false prophets will rise and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. I mean, false prophet, we've all seen it, right? Right? A lots of crazy prophecies. You know what I'm saying? We're seeing this play out. Now watch what Jesus says this. It's not like, oh, this is going to get horrible. That's the end. He says, because lawlessness will, abound, lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations. And then the end will come. Let me tell you something. The little promise he tags in the end of this is he that endures to the end will be saved. One more passage here. Mark chapter 13 verses 9 to 13. Jesus says, watch for yourselves for they will deliver you. It's the Olivet Discourse again, I believe. For they will deliver you up to councils and you will be beaten in the synagogues and you will be brought out before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations and when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand what, or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given to you in that hour speaks that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now, brother will betray brother to death, the father his child. And children will rise against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated for, by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. Now, three times Jesus made this statement. Or three times I should say It's recorded that he made this statement. He that endures to the end will be saved. The word endure there means to persevere. So whoever perseveres, and literally it, it implies, remains steadfast under misfortune. He that perseveres till the end will be saved. And the word saved there, he's not speaking necessarily of salvation, although it can imply salvation, but he's talking about whoever endures to the end will be rescued is how that word is translated, become delivered or rescued from sin and also consequential judgment. So as God is judging the world in these last days, the believers will be saved. And I'm not talking like pre-trib, post-trib, rapture and all that stuff. I'm not talking eschatology. I'm saying saved in the sense of the Lord will preserve you even in the midst of all the chaos if you endure to the end. So, well, how do we do that? How do we make it through all this chaos and keep our minds sane and live a life for Jesus and have somewhat a sense of direction and purpose in our life? Great question. So I read through, like I said, all the early church fathers, uh, Tertullian, Justin Martyr, uh, a couple of others that I can't remember their names. And uh, it was amazing how all of them would cite this reference as this is what will happen in the end times. The church, and, and I'm kind of summarize they said the church would get stronger and stronger and stronger because they learn how to go through suffering to the point where every nation would receive the gospel and then the end would come so it's not a we're all hunkering down and stockpiling MREs until Jesus comes it's we're learning how to go through suffering until the world is changed and then Jesus comes That's what Jesus says. I'm not making that up. He says, this gospel of the kingdom must be preached in all the world, and then the end will come. Now, watch what he says here. I'll move on to my notes here. How do we endure? And uh, as I was thinking through this this morning, and, and I felt like the Holy Spirit pointed me to this passage, which I've never read it like this. But in Luke chapter 3, verses 4 through 15, it's the statement that John the Baptist makes as... The first advent of Jesus is coming. Jesus is, I'm not talking about Christmas, but Jesus is beginning his ministry. And John steps on the scene and he says, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, and every valley shall be filled, and every mountain shall shall be brought, mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough way smooth smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John is not just speaking of the first advent of Jesus, he's speaking of the second. Because some of these statements didn't, were not fulfilled in Christ's first coming. When he says all the mountains will be made low, what is he saying? All justice will be brought about. All the valleys will be lifted, lifted up. He's saying what? There will be equality. And then he says all flesh will see the salvation of God. Did that happen when Jesus came the first time? We honestly can't say yes to that. So what could he possibly be speaking of? The second advent. And when this, this season is coming, he says, this is how you prepare. So people are starting asking, like, wait a minute. If all flesh is going to see the glory of God, what do we do? Verse 7, then, they, then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. So he's preaching. Now you got to take this in context. When John is saying Jesus is coming, every Jew thinks it's to end the world. That's what they think. Because he's coming to squelch the Roman Occupation, the Greek occupation, and he's gonna come sit as the heir of David's throne and rule the nations. In fact, you remember that part after Jesus rises from the dead and they're out in the upper room, or they're going to the Mount of Olives, and you know what the disciple says? Lord, is it at this time you're gonna restore the kingdom? I mean, like, we're done, right? They have no idea, they're just at the beginning of the restoration of his kingdom. But they're thinking, Jesus is here, he's gonna restore the world. He died, he rose again. It's over. (laughs) That's their way of thinking because that's what they were taught. There wasn't a lot of um, eschatological teaching that taught that Jesus would come and then he would ascend back to the Father and there would be this season of time for the church to dominate, take over, and bring the gospel to the world. That wasn't in their ideology or framework of thinking. And so when Jesus comes the first time, they're thinking it's the last time, also. But John is saying, listen, the last time all flesh will see the glory of God. And they're like, okay, how do we prepare for this? Don't, verse, uh, verse 8, John says, Therefore, in light of the coming Christ and all that's going to happen, he says, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father, speaking to the Jews. For I say to you, Abraham is able to raise up children uh, I'm sorry, but God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Even now, and he's talking about the judgment of God that's coming on the earth when Christ returns. He says, even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, even the tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So, and this is the part I want to get to. The people asked him saying, what shall we do? What do we do? you would going think it's been a great altar call to give. Believe on the Messiah that's coming. But he doesn't go in that direction. He says, listen, and people say, what shall we do? And he answered them and said to them, he who has two tunics, let him give what he has to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then the tax collectors come to him to be baptized and a teacher, what do we do? So the Jews come to him uh, or those that are listening and say, what do we do? And he's saying basically, listen, quit stockpiling what you have, share. And the next thing, the, the tax collectors come to him and say, what do we do? And he says to them, um, the tax collectors also came to be baptized, and said to him, "Teacher, what shall we do?" And he said to them, "Collect no more than what is appointed for you." And likewise, the soldiers asked him and said, "What shall we do?" And he said to them, "Do not intimidate anyone, do not intimidate anyone, or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages." And so he gives these simple, practical responses to very emotional concerns of the end of the age for them as they consider it. And what is he saying? The character in your heart has to change for you to be prepared for what's coming. And he points to three things. And, of course, there's three different audiences, but it applies to everybody. First, he talks about what? Generosity. Here's where I'm going with this. If you're going to go through suffering and you're going to do it well, you have to keep your heart open. Because here's what's happening many times when we get into suffering. We shut down our availability or vulnerability to give because we're in self-preservation mode. How many of y'all ran out of toilet paper (laughs) when COVID hit? What was happening? Everybody was hoarding. I don't know where all that toilet paper went, but I'm pretty sure it's in closets all across America. In fact, I think we found like 20 cases today. (laughs) 23 cases of toilet paper here. That wasn't from COVID. That was just from stockpiled back. What happens? Our natural human nature is when we're in suffering mode or we're in a place of Panic, we hoard. I'm going to make sure me and my family get through this. And what does John say here? Generosity. Everyone is in panic mode, and the church's response should be generous mode. And that's hard because you're thinking, I know what you're thinking in the back of your mind, what if we run out? My God will supply all my needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. You either believe that or you don't. I remember when I was a kid, my mom used to tell me stories of a missionary named Sadhu, Sadhu Sundar Singh. And I'll, I'll, if I tell the story, I'll start crying. But there's many miracles that he did when he was uh, a missionary. He was a pioneer missionary in South India, actually throughout most of India. And he was so poor because he was an outcast of outcasts. He couldn't get a job. He's preaching the gospel. And He would go hungry for days, and of course, him and his wife, and he had a child at the time, um, they learned the practice of believing God for food, not just for them, but for the whole street they lived on. And so, Singh would go into his house, they would start a fire with the little wood that they had, put a pot on the fire, put water in it, and pray. And rice would appear. And they'd boil the rice, and they'd feed the street. I mean, numerous times. Listen, he learned to be generous in the midst of suffering. You know what generosity does? It takes the focus off of my problem and puts it on helping others. You think, well, Stephen, I don't have the resources. I'm not a millionaire. I can't. It doesn't say if you're a millionaire. This was the average Joe. If you have two coats, give one. He didn't say if you have 20, give one. If you have two Give one. This this crazy idea that swept through the church back in the Left Behind series days, people started stockpiling all kinds of stuff like it's the end of the world and we're going to hunker down and live like our eternal life is going to be here on earth. It's not. John says, listen, if you have two of something, learn how to be generous. Give. And it's not just emotionally feel generous or intellectually feel generous or commit to thoughts of generosity you have to do something with that. You have to give. A lot of times we take the direct practical um, steps of obedience and we try to spiritualize it, which ends up making it nothing, right? Well, I feel generous, Stephen. Is that enough? No, it's not enough. You have to like reach into your pocket and take out something and give, right? And that keeps your heart from getting locked in on Self-preservation. The second thing John says is that he's talking to the soldier and he says, uh, the tax collector, and he says, don't collect more than what you're supposed to. But walk in integrity is what he's saying, right? Walk in integrity. Listen, when the world goes to crisis, many times people's level of integrity goes through the window. It's okay to cheat and steal, lie, bend the truth a little bit to get by. Because we're all in crisis mode. Listen, especially in crisis mode, integrity is important especially in crisis mode, especially when you're in suffering, integrity is important. Because if God can't trust you to be faithful to the truth in crisis mode, when can he trust you? And it's hard. Listen, I know it's hard. Because everybody bends the rules when emergency mode comes on and suffering happens. They're like, well, it's okay. God doesn't mind. I'm suffering. He does mind, especially because you're suffering. And he's, So John says to the tax collectors, listen, don't, do more, don't collect more than you're supposed to because that was the livelihood of the tax collector was to overcharge and he'd get the surplus of what he charged. He said, don't overcharge. You know what that would do to the tax collector? It would create a dependence on him, to, on God for provision in his life. Everything that John is talking about here creates a vacuum that God has to fill to make it through suffering. The last thing he says, he says to the Romans, be content with your wages. Instead of looking at, Looking and wanting more from others or from life, choose to be content. And listen, this is hard, especially for us in American culture, because we are constantly commercialized and fed this idea that happiness will come with the more stuff you get. You got a 52 inch TV, you really need a 72. You got a 72, you need an 84. You got an 84, you need a wall in your house. Then you're really gonna be excited. You have this, you have the, you know, 2015 model of this vehicle. You need the 2021 model. No, you need the 2022 model. You need the, I mean, we feed this idea of if I can just have more and have more and have more, then somehow I'm going to be happier. And listen, the Bible says it like this. Godliness with contentment is great gain. There's a place Where suffering is minimized when you say, I have enough. I'm not going to kill myself to get more. I was talking to a buddy of mine the other day, and uh, he works at a refinery job. And, man, just working his brains out. And all you refinery workers, you know, they'll work you as hard as you want to be worked. And the struggle is, man, I could just push a little bit more, make a little bit more money, a little bit more. And then before you know it, years of your life are gone. And there's no amount of money that's coming back to restore that. Here's what I'm saying. Contentment minimizes the potential for suffering in the future. When you say, it's enough, I don't need any more money. I don't need a bigger house. I don't need a bigger car. I'm just going to be thankful for what I have. You know, a great way to build contentment in your life is to thank God regularly for what you have. So he says, Stephen, if I had all the stuff you have, I'd be thankful. Listen, I was thankful before I had it. And I'll be thankful when I lose it, if I lose it. And I can tell you that because we've lost it all before and been thankful through the process. I'm telling you, it's a choice you make. David Platt in his book, Radical, he talks about the line. I think it's toward the end of the, chap- end of the book. But he says, everyone should have a line. I only need this much money to live. And then after that, I don't need any more. And if you don't know what that number is or where that line is, contentment's going to be hard to get to. I only need so much material things to be happy. And really, happiness doesn't come from that. I only need so much to live. And contentment comes from a choice. I'm following Jesus. You know what the, the most fulfilling feeling is? No matter what you have or don't have, you have this sense of, I'm going to make it. God's going to take care of me. Whether I have everything or I have nothing. When our when Hurricane Harvey, and I don't want to beat this one too much, but when Hurricane Harvey hit, you know, we lost everything. Eight and a half feet of water in our house. We lost everything except what was in our little guest bedroom upstairs. We had a few photos, and Jen had some stuff there. and uh, But we lost everything. The kids lost all their clothes, all their toys. And, of course, we're not talking just water. We're talking like sewage water run through your house and snakes and all that wonderful stuff. So we lost everything, and so I was... It came back to the area first, and me and and uh, really a lot of the Kai students, friends, and family all came mostly friends came and gathered around us, and we gutted our house. I mean, we gutted everything like ten feet or whatever it was, how high we had to go, just gutted everything. And of course, it was very heartbreaking, as many of you guys know and have experienced. And so, as we're gutting everything out of the house, I mean, in our front yard is all the toys and all the stuff. I mean, just you couldn't touch it because. The, the concern was just the toxicity of all that putrid water infesting everything. Cleaning it wasn't even going to do justice to be preserved. And so by the grace of God, Jen, by just the wisdom that the Lord gave her, when, they, when the kids came back and they saw the piles and piles of all their stuff in the front yard to be picked up by the dump truck, you know, of course, they had a meltdown and they cried, and which you need to grieve. When you go through suffering, there's a place of her grief. But then the Lord began to restore things. And so we'd get things like towels. And so we would be thankful. We still have a lot of those same towels, those big blue towels. We got bags and bags of just towels. And we would teach the kids, hey, we're going to thank the Lord for this. Thank you, Lord, for these towels. Then we got started getting clothes for the kids. I mean, because they just left with a few outfits. Thank you, Lord, for these clothes. Thank you, Lord, for just simple things. And, and as we were thankful, and she was teaching them how to say thanks, and at the end of the week or the end of the day, we'd sit around. She would sit around with the kids, and just they would just talk about, thank the Lord for this. Thank the Lord for providing this. And so at the end of that year, I think Jen was talking to them, and she said, what was your favorite thing this year? And you know what they all said? Hurricane Harvey was awesome. And we were like, oh, my God, what have we done to these kids? But they were thankful through the process, and it kept their heart at a place of contentment. They were thankful for the hotels that we were able to stay at. They didn't know all the financial stuff behind it. We barely knew the financial stuff behind it. but just chose in our heart, I'm going to be thankful. Even to this day, I caught myself the other day walking through my house, Lord, thank you for a closet full of clothes. There was a time a few years ago I had no clothes. Thank you, Lord. And here's what gratitude does. It keeps you in tune with what reality is. Because ingratitude ingratitude will breed a sense of entitlement, and you're out of touch with reality at that point. You think you should have things that you really don't deserve, that you have no right to even think about and ask. That's what ingratitude does. That entitlement mentality, even what you have seems like less. But when you're grateful, you always have enough. Right? You guys know this stuff. Romans chapter 12, verse 12. Paul's writing to the Romans and he's giving them tools because he's writing to a church that's persecuted how to get through suffering. Y'all still with me? He says in Romans 12, verse 12, be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love. This is not a fake sincerity. This is a genuine choice to like people. When you're going through suffering, there's a part of you that just wants to shut off vulnerability and relationships. Because I'm suffering, everybody should be pouring into my life. And I'm not saying there's not a time for people to minister to you. There is. But you have to make the choice. I'm going to give and rely on the grace of God to give me the ability to pour out even when I'm hurting. He says, be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in patient, rejoicing in hope. Patient, and that word there literally means enduring in tribulation. Continuing steadfastly in prayer. That's kind of the how. How do you get all that power to do this? Continuing steadfastly in prayer. Say, Stephen, how do you get all this stuff out of your heart? How do you get the complaint out? Prayer. Me and God, we talk about it. We talk about it. And I don't mean it always is nice, you know, very diplomatic conversation. There's frustrations. I mean, have you read the book of Psalms? There's a lot of frustrations. David poured out of his heart to the Lord. But here's the thing. When you pour it out and you give it to the Lord, he speaks back. And he puts life back into perspective for you. And you realize, I can make it through this suffering. And he's going to give me these tools. He says, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. That's how we endure suffering. Let me see him I'm on my last page here. First, uh, did I skip a page here? I don't know. Okay. Continuing steadfastly in prayer. Then he goes on here. One more passage, and I'll close this up for you. First Peter chapter 2, verse 20. He says, For what credit is it if you, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable to God. And that word commendable to God, that word commendable literally means this is the grace working out of you before God. God has put into us, believe it or not, the day you were born again, an ability to endure hardship. You know what that's called? The Holy Spirit's inside of you. When the Holy Spirit is present in you, inside of you is all of the ability to endure hardship. So this, this uh, common um, phrase that we kind of parrot, I don't have what it takes to get through this. Yes, you do. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you. And you need to start believing that the same Spirit who raised Christ from the dead dwells inside of you. And he can make alive your mortal body. I don't have it yes you do the Holy Spirit is inside of you you might have to you might have to prime the pump a little bit and kind of get the power out by praying and saying God show me how to be kind show me how not to get bitter show me how to love people when I don't feel like loving the worst thing you can do when you go through suffering is do what you feel because feelings will lead you into the ditch and they will prolong your suffering in spite of how you feel you respond in obedience to what God's word says. These aren't just mild suggestions of how to get through suffering. This is directives how to get through this. He says this. What credit is it if, you, if, if you're suffering because of your faults and you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, it is commendable before God. It means grace is working out of you before God. I'll close with this story and I know we're running out of time. I could tell you a lot of stories of suffering as I'm sure many of you guys could tell me a lot of stories about suffering you've been in through your life but here's what I know and what what helps me many times as I look into the future and and let's just be honest as we all look down the years it's kind of cloudy nobody can tell us for sure what's going to happen I mean we know it's somewhere Jesus is coming but between now and then we don't know could be great could not be great but there's a wonderful promise suffering's going to happen between now and then so how are we going to get through this process number 1 you have to know suffering is coming and then i would i would encourage you to look at these principles that john the baptist kind of laid out in his dialogue to the people who were watching him baptize and prepare them for christ to come generosity integrity contentment and those three principles generosity integrity contentment will set your heart in a place that no matter what happens if you practice those elements in your life being generous to people even when they're not being generous to you or worthy of your generosity walking integrity when everybody else is cheating the system being content when everyone else is building their pile of gold you'd be happy with what God's blessed you with It will get you through prolonging suffering. It will keep you from it. I'll close with this story. I was, uh, this last time I went to Africa, um, I took my son with me, Benjamin, and we had a great time. We're out in the middle of the desert, you know, it's hot, very uh, rugged terrain out there and we go out there and physically there's an element of suffering, you know, we're you're just not at home. I mean, I don't know about you. I'm kind of a homebody. If I'm not at home, I'm suffering, period. You know what I'm So there's a little bit of, of wear and tear on the body. And so the last day of the trip uh, that we're supposed to fly back to um, the U.S., we get a phone call early in the morning. Our missionary our friend gets a phone call in the morning and says, one of our pilots is sick, and, of course, he, we're flying these little twin engine or, or propeller planes, I should say, not twin engine, propeller planes, and so one of the pilots is sick, and so he can't make the journey. And so we figure out a way, that halfway point between where we are and where we need to go, which the drive itself is nine-hour drive in the Sahara heat. Just imagine how miserable it is in times 10. That's how bad it is, right? So it's about a nine-hour drive if you're going on favorable conditions. And so the pilot says he'll meet us halfway if we can drive halfway, and then he'll fly back and forth twice to take our team to the airport to get us to our flight on time. So we're racing the clock. So we jump out of bed. We pack up everything. Ben's with me. He packs up his stuff. We jump in the vehicle. It's a small little uh, Land Rover SUV. And so we're jam-packed in there with all our luggage behind us and inside. And uh, we're, we're trucking down the road. We're racing the clock. There's no speed limits out there. You just go as fast as you can go, you know. And so we're, we're rush- rushing. And uh, as we get to close to, this, to the uh, airstrip where we're supposed to, Catch our little plane. There's a village between us and the airstrip, and it's the only road. There's not like any side roads or anything you go on that the truck would make it through. And so there's a village there. And as we look ahead, there's a crowd of people, and uh, we slowly slow down. Obviously, you don't want to hit anybody, so you slow down a little bit. And there's this crowd of teenagers, and they are angry. I mean, like angry. They got sticks in their hands. They their faces are painted, and it's a mob. Before we realize what's happening, the mob surrounds the vehicle, and they're starting to beat on the vehicle. As you can imagine, panic rose quickly. (laughs) You're like, we're going to die. And I'm not talking like 20, 30 teenagers. We're talking hundreds. So it's not like you can jump out of the vehicle and fight them off. They will kill you, you know. And so they're angry, and they begin to start shaking the vehicle. We're in park. Where he stopped completely and they start shaking the vehicle. I'm looking at my son. I don't, and I'm thinking, okay, if I die, great, but my son, what's gonna happen? And I've got Curtis, former army man, next to me on one side. And I've got uh, Anthony, my buddy who's a pilot slash, you know, kind of a buff guy. And then my father in law is in the front seat. I'm like, what are we gonna do? We got two of my family members in this vehicle. What's going to happen? And panic rises up inside of me. And then the car begins to shake. And, man, these guys are like, and I didn't realize it at the moment. I was like, I thought, man, I hope we locked the back door to this SUV. I don't remember locking it. It's like, Lord, because if they open it, they're coming in, you know. And so as the car is shaking, the missionary rolls down his window and starts talking to the crowd to try to calm them down to find out why they're so angry, right? They're not listening, so he puts it in reverse, and we slowly start backing away from the crowd. Now the time is crunching. If we miss our plane, I mean, you're talking a 23-hour flight that would be delayed, which could get us stuck in Africa for a while. So he backs up, and as he backs up and we get back a good distance, the kids start chasing us. And so we just begin to start praying in the spirit. And we had to tell our nerves, you need to settle down. You need to quit panicking. You need to quit freaking out. And you begin to believe that the Lord is going to take you through this. And so the missionary pulls back up to the crowd. And one of the kids, he probably was no more than like a 13-year-old kid, you know, thought he was rolling the day with his half-broken baseball bat. Walks up to us, and the missionary's talking to him very uh, vigorously and pleading like, hey, we just need to get through. We're missionaries. We're here to help you, blah, blah, blah. And the kids weren't having just this rage on their face. They were angry at the world, you know. And uh, so we approached, and I think we did it twice. We kept approaching the crowd, and they wouldn't disperse. And so finally, as we pulled up, we began to pray, and the missionary rolled down his window and, and he said something in the house. So I didn't know what he said. And they made a little window of opening before us, and he punched it. Of course, we don't want to kill anybody, we don't want to hit any kids. Punched it through, we made it through to the other side. We get to the airport just in time, get on the plane, and get out. Of course, we're all frazzled to bits, nerves are shot. And in that moment, and the reason I tell you that, in that moment, I could sense the Holy Spirit come over us and say, you're going to make it through. Don't freak out. Don't prolong the suffering by panic and self-preservation and how to get through this. Relax. Trust me. Do exactly what I say. I'm going to get you through this. I'm not saying it's always a glorious ending in our life. Many times suffering for us is costly. But in the eternal scope, he's going to get you through. And here's what the incredible, somewhat non-popular idea of what suffering does. It makes you trust Jesus like you've never trusted him before. James says it like this. My brethren, count it all joy when you endure various trials, diverse trials, knowing this, that the testing of your faith will produce patience, endurance. And when patience has its perfect work, you will be complete and entire, lacking nothing. God is not orchestrating suffering in your life, but when it hits your life, He's orchestrating you becoming like him in the process. That's what he's working on. No matter what the enemy throws at you, you can count it a joy to go through suffering because if you go through it with these principles that the word of God has laid out for us, you'll become like Jesus at the end. And you, of all people, will be celebrating the joy of going through suffering there's no other shortcut to becoming like him. You must go through the cross. You must go through suffering. The world is broken and he's trying to make sons and daughters of God out of a broken world. That's just the way he does it. If everything was fine, you would never have to create that reliance on him that only suffering can do for you. And tonight as we Wrap up, here's what I'm telling you. Some of you are in suffering mode already. You're in a ditch, you're in a rut, you're in a place. Whether you did it, somebody else did it, you're in a place. And the word of the Lord that's coming to you today is saying, hey, listen, you're going to get through this. If you will, let your heart move into generosity, integrity, contentment. Let's bow our heads for just a moment. Thank you for listening to Stephen's podcast. To connect with us or to order his book, A Reason for Hope, visit stephensamuel.org. You can also find him on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at, you guessed it, Stephen Samuel. Thanks for listening.